reading this afternoon is from Romans chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 9. Verse 9 to verse 28. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, His righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Amen. May God bless the reading of his own word. And let us... Amen. Dear congregation, I trust you know and understand the great importance of the book of Romans, the letter of Apostle Paul to the Romans. It, may, it, it is always good to be reminded that we, any time we open in the book of Romans, we are opening in a very, very specifically precious book because the theme of this whole book is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In many ways, it takes, it takes the whole Bible, of course, as pointing to Christ. But this is the one theological book from A to Z, as if to say, that goes through what the gospel is, how much we need it. It starts that way. How salvation can be obtained. Remember, we saw the dimension. God's word last time not only says what eternal life is, but it says how we can have it. And in the book of Romans, not only does it explain what salvation is, but it says how one can be saved. And then the very last part of Romans is how a saved person lives. And God has used it to save many people's lives. People of renown, people that are known. Among them is Augustine of Hippo. It is known that it was reading through Romans that God saved his life. Perhaps the most famous is Martin Luther. That he was enlightened, especially regarding the doctrine that we're hoping to study today of justification by faith. He had a completely wrong understanding of that doctrine, but it was reading through Romans that God enlightened his eyes and he was saved. And then he's writing um, expositions on Romans and, and it's John Wesley who picks that up. And in reading those expositions that Luther wrote on Romans, um, God saves John Wesley and so on and so forth. John Bunyan is another one I could speak of. Um, One commentator, C.E.B. Cranfield, said this, not just about Romans, but about this very portion that we have just read, and especially verses 21 through 29. It's the center and heart of the whole of the epistle to the Romans. But then there's... Another Reformed commentator called Robert Mounts who goes a step deeper and he says this, not just about about what he thinks, but he says generally acknowledge that this little portion is generally acknowledged to be the most theologically important segment of the entire New Testament. This little portion, speaking of this righteousness that is revealed, that is by faith, It says it's the righteousness of God. It is unto all them that believe, for there is no difference, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is perhaps one of the most famous verses about our condition because of sin. And then verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And in verse 25, He explains, He brings forth the precious word, propitiation. Now these these are the vocabulary words of the gospel. And then there's another commentator called Leon Morris, and he declares this, that this is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. You know, it's, it's, it's not to say that the rest of the Bible is not important, but it's to say that it's, in essence, a summary of the rest of the Bible and why the rest of the Bible is there. And when you think of all those lamb offerings from the Old Testament, they were telling a story. All of those little animals were propitiation. They were all redemption. All of the people offering them were hoping for forgiveness. They were hoping for this righteousness. And that's the whole of the Old Testament. We hear of those sacrifices from Adam and Eve, literally, all the way to the death of Christ. And then that's why we don't need those death 
and, and those sacrifices anymore. It's because of Jesus. And, and verses 21 through 28 are explaining why we don't need those sacrifices anymore. And, and, the rest, and the rest of the Bible and what Paul is doing, giving of his life to go from town to town to preach about Christ. These, these few verses here are, are the center of it all, explaining everything. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives this definition of justification by faith. He says, This is a doctrine which tells us that God has contrived a way whereby men and women can be saved and reconciled unto Himself. It is all His doing. It tells us that God, on the basis of what He has done in His Son, our blessed Lord and Savior, freely forgives and absolves from all their sin all who believe the gospel. But it does not stop at that. They are furthermore clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and declared to be just and righteous in God's sight. And in a little word, this being declared to be just and righteous is really the center point of what justification is. And as we read in, in our confession of faith that is saying, well, why is it important to believe all these things that we've been confessing? Boys and girls, every afternoon we begin our services after having sung a psalm and having, having read the Bible. We read a confession, and it's usually the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed. And what are we doing? We are saying what we believe. And when we're studying all of these creeds, as, as I read from Lord's Day 23, the question is, well, what, what do you do with all this? We need to believe it. But what happens when we believe? And I love it how they summarize it, that I am righteous in Christ before God, an heir of eternal life. This is the most important thing in all of life. It's more important than, than the bills you have. It's more important than the degree you're working on. It's more important than our health. It's more important than our bank. It's more important than our homes. It's more important than anything. If you don't have this faith that gives you this eternal life, you literally have nothing. And the little few minutes you have more to live, in eternity it will be like a blink of an eye. This right now, in moments of living, you are listening to that which matters most every time you hear God's word. Let's go through this doctrine looking at these three points. The righteousness of God, we'll start there. And then we'll look at the unrighteousness of man because God's word declares it. And then we will go to our third point, the righteousness of God by faith. So first of all, the righteousness of God. And, and I, I bring this directly from verse 21. It says in verse 21 of chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God. And then verse 22 says, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon them all. So we need to understand there, there's two elements here about the righteousness of Christ. Here in the text, and this is exactly what Luther did not understand that made him so miserable. 
He thought that a believer needs to attain this righteousness, and it's not just trying to be as good as we can. We need to be as good as God is, and if we don't get there, we will never be justified. So he understood justified separate from this righteousness of God. He thought, well, righteousness of God is my goal. That's what I need to attain. Once I get there, He'll declare me righteous. It sounds very logical because how can you be declared righteous if you don't have it? And, and what righteousness is this? Why would God demand a lower righteousness than the righteousness of God? But it was because he didn't understand the grammar and even the translation in the, in the Latin um, version of this very pa- passage. The, the, the justification element was really giving credence to this thought of I need to keep climbing and climbing and climbing. And when I finally reach that, you know, that's why the, the Catholic mindset of sainthood, you know, that maybe if you're locked into a monastery and you've prayed and your knees are on the ground and you're suffering and you're sweating, then you're that holy. That's literally how many people are still living their lives today. They're they're trying to attain that righteousness in order for God to look and say, okay, now you're declared righteous. That is not at all what this word is meaning. It is a righteousness that God declares, yes, by faith, but it's not because of your works, it's because of His work in Christ. It's because of Christ's work and His merited work. And then God declares you as righteous. And with what righteousness? The righteousness of God. And so we we need to start looking at the righteousness of God meaning His righteousness itself. Because this is what I want to impress upon you. The God who declares His own righteous, He is righteous. And we will see at the end how important this is. So let us speak for a few minutes about His righteousness itself. And, and, and it's a wonderful exercise to stop to contemplate that when we're speaking about God and His righteousness, we are speaking of perfection, period. He is completely righteous. There is no sin in God, no imperfection whatsoever, no conflict, no change. He is holy in all His ways and His thoughts. His justice is holy. His wrath is holy. His love is holy. His mercy, His wisdom, His patience, everything is holy about God. There is no more righteous being in the universe than God. Angels who have not fallen are righteous, but theirs is a derived righteousness. We we could think of Adam and Eve for however days they had not fallen. They were righteous, but theirs was, again, a derived righteous. They were righteous because God had made them and created them righteous. But God, He is righteous in and of Himself. See, just as He is a being in Himself, who needs no creator and needs no father or mother, so is his righteousness. It's not a derived righteousness. It's not an imitated righteousness. It is not a merited righteousness. It is his. And righteousness, boys and girls, it very simply means with no sin whatsoever. He never lies. He never does anything bad. He has No sin. He is perfect in rectitude, in purity. 
He is altogether holy. Now, when we speak of holiness, you understand there's a little dimension that's different. If you were to put an outline, holiness and righteousness, holiness goes on top because holiness means that God is other, and because He's other, He's also righteous. The righteousness is a reality of His being other from everything else. Think, think of the world. There are a lot of big things here, the Himalayans, but God is other. He is bigger than the Himalayans. And then think of everything else. Think of the cosmos, and we think how gigantic this, these, these stars and, and moons and the, and the galaxies are. Well, God is other than that because He's greater still. There's no competition in terms of greatness. He's the one who made it all. And then when you think of us as a world and then there's sin, God is other in that way too. He's separate from all of the sin. There is impurity here. There's no impurity in Him. And so His, holy, His, His, His um, righteousness comes in function of His holiness. That is why then His holiness becomes this, this theme that is overarching all the other attributes of God. Let, let me explain. Um, think of the tabernacle. Everything about the tabernacle was holy. The tabernacle was holy. Every furniture was holy. The very oil that was taken in to anoint things was holy. The incense was holy. The reason people weren't supposed to imitate that incense and use it at home was because they were, they were, they were denying, as it were, the holiness of the one that was to be used for the tabernacle. And they, they were not allowed to have any kind of, of competition, as it were, with that that was used for the tabernacle. The ark of the covenant was holy. The bread and the wine that stood at the table of showbread was holy. The priests who served, they were all to be holy. They did offerings for themselves before they did it for the people, for their sanctification and being seen before God as holy. Everything in the description of the tabernacle, even the clothing of the priests and the Levites, their actions, their words, their work, their mitre had that little plaque that said, Holiness to the Lord. The first room of the tabernacle was called the holy place. And then as you entered into the holiest of all that none of us could dare enter in, it was called the holy of holies. God is glorious in his holiness, Exodus 15, 11. And Thomas Watson, one of the Puritans, said his power makes him mighty. His holiness makes him glorious. And, and this is what we find, this reality of a glory connected to God because of his holiness. You know how um, the only attribute that is repeated three times, it, is, it isn't just a comparative, it's a superlative, holy, holy, holy. And we find that hymn twice in Isaiah when he has a vision of the temple and the angels are glorifying God and calling him holy. And then in Revelations where, where John has a vision of heaven and the angels are glorifying God as holy, 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 He is holy in His nature. He is holy in His word. He is holy in His actions. Holiness began with God, and it can be received only in Him. And when I say began, it's a, it's a way of speaking. It, it's been eternal with God in His holiness. Anyone who is holy 
is because of God. Leviticus 20, verse 8. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. He is the pattern of holiness. He is the principle of holiness. He's the very definition of holiness. Another Puritan, Stephen Charnock, he said this, A chief emphasis is placed upon this perfection of God. God is more often spoken of as holy than almighty and set forth by his part of, his, of this part of his dignity more than by any other. This is more fixed on as an epithet to his name than any other. You never find it expressed his mighty name or his wise name, but his great name. And most of all, His holy name. This is the greatest title of honor. In this does the majesty and venerableness of His name appear. That He is holy. And so, let us have that in our hearts. When we, when we read of this righteousness that is declared by God, it is a righteous God who declares it. And now let's go to our second point where we see the unrighteousness of man. And, and here you see, beloved, the reality of how this humbles us in the contrast. Now if we are to talk about you and me, how does God's word begins where we began? Um, he says, what then? Are we better than they? And, and just as a summary, um, chapters 1 and 2, what Paul was laboring to show, he was bringing, remember, people from all the walks of life, starting with paganism and even entering into Judaism. So, so with people who have no morality, to people who have some, to some who are religious, and he was saying, not a single one of these are outside of what I need to talk about. The Jews felt they had some hope in him, and they would agree to say, yeah, the Gentiles out there, they're really bad off. And Paul comes in and says, no, you too. You need what I have to say here. And then after describing with all those words, using Psalms and Isaiah, Jeremiah, and, he's, and speaking of how we, we're, we've all gone out of the way, together we become unprofitable. There's none who do, doeth good. This is us, beloved. It's a description of our nature. And then in verse 19, Paul now includes himself. He's not being here someone who's saying, I'm outside of all this mess. No, he says in verse 19, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. And you wonder, Paul, are you including your mouth? Yes, look at the continuation. And all the world may become guilty before God. And Paul was part of the world. Verse 19, in essence, Paul is saying, stop talking. Not a single one of us can appear before God and say, but, but Lord, look at that good thing I did. Or even to say, but Lord, I was never taught the Ten Commandments. Or some people who would say, like those in that parable that Jesus taught, but I, but I did these things, and I, and I, and I did a lot of charity, and I, and I did a lot of prophesying. Well, there will be this day where every mouth will be stopped. And what a blessed day, beloved, it is if it happens right now. Or if, it, if you're a true believer, remember that this has to be an ongoing reality, that we don't go on with our mouths explaining why we sin, but that we acknowledge that we are guilty before God. That's the unrighteousness of man. Now, let me tell a little, a little um, 
not really a little story, but just bring in here something that for Apostle Paul would have been perhaps one of the most personal things he ever wrote in one of his epistles. It was to the epistles of the Philippians. And he's there describing his life. And he, and he says this in Philippians 3, Philippians 3, beginning in verse 8, towards the end, he says that I may win Christ and be found in Him, and then this phrase, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. He's talking about the same thing he says here to the Romans. But here in the Philippians, he's adding this very, very personal touch. Now, for you to understand and appreciate how personal this is, you you need to understand who this man is who's speaking. This is Apostle Paul, and this is a confession. Because remember, he was a Pharisee. And Pharisees thought that they had their own righteousness. They knew exactly how much they could carry on a Sabbath day, and they didn't dare do a little bit more. And so they knew they were keeping and remembering the Sabbath day. They never used the name of God in vain, so they knew they weren't breaking that name. They knew they had only one God, Jehovah. They would recite that every single day that there was no other God, and so they knew they were keeping that commandment, and they knew how to keep themselves pure so they wouldn't commit adultery, and they wouldn't dare kill anybody, so they thought they were believing, they were obeying that. And they literally thought they were obeying every jot and tittle of the law. That's how a Pharisee lived. This is what Paul had labored his whole life to attain. He grew up learning that he could attain it if he tried hard enough. He was raised believing that he was getting closer. He labored daily thinking that he had already attained it. He sat at Gamaliel's feet with that very hope and prospect that righteousness would be achieved by his efforts. He, he writes also to the Philippians a little bit of how he was thinking. Look at Philippians 3, 4 through 7. He says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Then he makes a list basically showing how he used to think. This is how he thought. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. It was, it was one of the best tribes because, remember, the north had all gone astray and, and many from Benjamin had stayed with Judah. And from Benjamin came their first king, albeit it was Saul, but it was the first. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, which would have been the strictest sect, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Paul did what he did because he thought he was gaining points with God and killing believers, touching the righteousness which is in the law. And here you see the word blameless. Paul is saying, if I write my biography of how I thought about myself, my self-evaluation before that day that I saw the Lord Jesus on the road to Emmaus, is that I was a righteous man. I was blameless. If I were to die, I'd go to heaven immediately. I had it all. We call that self-righteousness. In the days pre-Christ, he was righteous in his own eyes. 
He thought he had attained it all. He thought he was blameless. He thought he was above the others. That's why he so ruthlessly judged those who actually were in the right until he saw the glory of Christ. And this is what's so powerful of that conversion is that the moment he sees Jesus, it's as if he then sees himself. And when Jesus speaks of kicking against the prick and why dost thou persecute me, Jesus? It's as if he thought and remembered when I got the cloaks of all the people who killed Stephen, I was actually killing, as it were, Jesus. I was persecuting this, my Savior, who died on the cross to set me free, but I was killing him. And so he, he just says, what would thou have me to do? He was in a moment completely submissive to that Lord Jesus Christ as he saw him on the road to Emmaus. He probably didn't understand so many things, but he understood he was a sinner now. And and this is why I mean it was very personal for him to write to the Philippians, you know, I thought I had it. I thought I had a righteousness that was my own. Now, boys and girls, think of this. You you, you can relate to this in, in adults as well. Think of the most treasured possession you could ever have. Because for the Pharisee, righteousness would be that most precious possession because it was their, it was their guarantee that there would be heaven. Everything else could be amiss, but they, if they had that righteousness, they would go to heaven. But now Paul realized he didn't have it anymore. He realized it was lost. So think of that which you most treasure. And imagine you you open the garage, it's not there. Or you open the, 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 the wardrobe, it's not there. If it's your spouse, you turn around, he's not there or she's not there, gone. And that which you thought you had, you no longer do. And so Paul felt completely astonished. But this is where God's, God's mercy is that he immediately as Paul is seeing his depravity and his sinfulness, and this is why Paul, more than any other, speaks so clearly about his great, great sin of every single one of us. He's not, he's not afraid that he'll offend anybody because he himself calls himself as the chief of sinners. And, and, and so he's, he's not trying to downplay all of us. He's saying, I'm, I'm one of these. I, I'm, I'm the chief. I'm worse than all the other apostles. And on that day, when he sees Jesus, he sees his Savior. He sees the one who died in order that he could have a righteousness that was actually divine, that was actually true. See, his eyes opened that that possession actually was even as, as bad as dung itself. This, this is what he also tells the Philippians. Remember, he says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Say, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. So he's saying everything else now has no value other than Jesus himself and to know him for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. See, so he realized that what I thought I had that I called righteousness was, was refuse. Now I have him. And I have him declaring that I am righteous. 
And so, when we think of the unrighteousness of man, and we think of the man here, Paul, who is teaching us this, we we need to agree. And beloved, we we need our own Pauline experience of acknowledging, wait, I thought I was good. I, I went to church every Sunday, and I was reading my Bible. See, beloved, if you're putting your hope in doing all those things, and that that's what will bring you a favor before God, you are not yet with your eyes set upon Jesus. And He will help you understand that all those things are good. But we don't do them in order to obtain salvation. We do them because we have it. And we obtain salvation by trust in Christ. Perhaps the summary that Paul does here... um, We've read through this passage not too long ago where he goes through several Psalms in Jeremiah about our sinfulness. But I want to go to verse 23 where he he brings the summary of it all. It's kind of like the last going to those realities of sin in this context here. And he says in verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Of God, that that is his summary. See, he doesn't go on about our sinfulness now. He just brings that one verse: "All have sinned." Again, see, he includes himself and fall and have fallen short and come short of the glory of God. This brings the reality that the glory of God is the standard. And and this is why it's hopeless for any of us to think, "Well, I'll just try to attain." that righteousness to the point of the very glory of God and then I'll be saved. It is pointless. And you see, whoever thinks that way is sinning even in so doing because they're so proud to think that they could do it. Isn't it an irony that, that if, you, if you think you'll be saved by being righteous, you are sinning in the way of trying because your, 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 your heart is so, so proud thinking that that is possible. And yet when we just go to the very, our very knees and say, Lord, I'll never attain that righteousness. I'm so full of sin. I agree with what Paul is saying. I have fallen short of the glory of God. Save me. Forgive me. And to the eyes of the world, that, that is weakness. And that is, you know, people are going to step over you, but you're saying... If, if I don't have salvation, I go to hell. I have no eternity. Lord, save me. I need Thee. And then you can open your eyes to this glory, to this righteousness. You've confessed your sin, and that's what all of us have to do, and even continuously. And God will save you. He will justify you. He will declare you righteous. See, God's glory is the very standard. And what God is also saying with this, that all have um, come short of the glory of God, is that we should have the glory of God. And, And it brings the whole theology that when God created Adam and Eve, having the image of God, they have elements of the glory of God. Never a competing glory, but you could speak of a glory just like the sun has a glory from, the moon has a glory from the sun. Not a single brightness from the moon originates in them but they reflect it all and there's a glory to the moon and that's how Adam and Eve had the image of God and they and they shone forth a glory because of that image being pure and without any kind of impurity but when they fell and the image of God was marred 
they came short of the glory of God. And remember their verses that, that teach us that this glory is what we are to hope for and desire. Second Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. See, it's, the glory element is not just the glory of God. There's an aspect where if you're a believer, and, and the only way you can do this if, is if you have a believer, is that you will have something of that glory and grow from glory to glory. And when we go to heaven, we will have glorified bodies. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 Whereunto He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the unrighteousness of man is all of this about our sin, our incapacity, and also the lack of glory. And these are the things we need. We need a righteousness. We need this glory back. So let me go to point three. The righteousness of God by faith. The righteousness of God by faith. See, given the problem of the world, our own problem, that we lack righteousness, that we come short of glory, that very vocabulary indicates there's something of glory, but we come short. We agree that even even people who are not yet saved have something of the image of God. It is marred, but it's there. And that's a little bit of the glory. When, when, When you are converted... Elements of that image of God are repaired, but they're still not perfect. And so there's something of the glory. And as we grow in holiness, we go from glory to glory, as we read from 2 Corinthians. And in heaven, we will have the fullness of the glory that God intends His people to have. But it starts already here with justification. Let let me, in this third point, let's look at three questions and then we'll look at two little observations in conclusion. Look at these three questions answered. The first thing is, what is the source of God's righteousness? It's very important because here, I I know I brought this in sermons before and it's always good to have it reviewed um, because it's exactly what we're studying regarding faith. We don't go to faith first. What is the source of this righteousness? Well, it says that, which is by faith. Yes, faith is, is one element of the source, but we'll speak of it soon. We will speak of the, of the foundational source, or we could call it the efficient cause. And that is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, His atoning Sacrifice. This is why we read verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. It is not our faith that is a Savior. We will see the place of faith, but our Savior is Jesus. And so if anyone were to ask you, what is, what is the source of God's righteousness, His declaring you righteous? You could say it is Jesus' death on the cross. That's to answer that question. Now, secondly, what exactly happens when God justifies someone? What, what exactly happens in this, in this justification? And... and this is important. Sometimes we may speak with a certain vocabulary, but you have to understand the dimensions of what it means. It does not mean that you are made righteous. 
like here on earth, that you are no longer sinless, sinful, that you are sinless, that you have the righteousness of, of God here on earth. There, there's some who have believed that through history, and even today they do believe if you're a Christian, you have no more sins. That is unbiblical. That's not true. There, there will always be remaining sin. Any, any Christian is his own witness of this reality. Um, the, 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 the most holy Christians have, have been the very ones who will admit how great they are still in sin. I remember always what Pastor Jack Walkie would say, that, that missionary in Brazil who studied and was in church with Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, he told me, he said, Johnny, as you grow up as a Christian, this is what will happen. You will, be, you, will, you will grow more and more, and hopefully it's what happens. You're closer and closer to God, and God is this great light and full of holiness, and it will only show more and more the sin in your own heart. So it will be normal that as you're growing closer, you think you're really a greater sinner than you were ever before. And I'll never, I didn't understand exactly what he meant, but it, it made sense because he spoke, even gave the example of a flashlight and how that flashlight will shine and, and, it, and it will reveal things. And, and, and the holiness of God is like a flashlight that then reveals what's in our hearts. And we see all the more how holy He is. And then we start realizing, I really am not as good as I thought I was. And that, that really helped me early in my life. So it's not that God makes us holy, whereby now we sin no longer. That's not what justification means. And it doesn't mean also primarily, although here it is connected, to, to treat one as righteous, that God would treat us as if we were righteous, period. That, that is a result of justification, but it's not justification itself. Justification is not God saying, okay, I'll treat you. Now, there's something that comes before the treating. He, he does treat us as righteous, especially in the judgment day. He will treat His believers as righteous, but because He justified. And so, so then we need to understand, well, then what is justification? It's simply this, and this is the most simple understanding. It's God's declaration that you are righteous. And, and boys and girls, I hope this will help you. I've, I've used this before to explain. It helped me greatly. It is God as that judge, and we are that one sitting, about to be condemned. But because we believe in Christ, because we love the Lord Jesus, He hits that hammer, and instead of saying that you are guilty, He says you are innocent. And that's what the judge does, right? After he's heard everything, he will give the verdict or he will open what, what's been written and he says guilty or he says innocent. And justification is for God to declare you righteous. Therefore, he says you are innocent. It means to be acquitted by God from all the charges that he had against you. The charges that could be brought against you but if you're acquitted, those charges are done away with. They are no more. So justification is a judicial verdict. And, and that's why then, then yes, you will be treated as righteous. And then when you enter heaven and you, and you see Jesus, remember in that blinking of an eye, you will be 
turned as He is, and your body will become a glorified body, a spiritual body, then yes, you will be made righteous where you will have no more sin whatsoever. But the justification that appears now, it is God declaring. And so the first question, what is the source of God's righteousness? It's Christ and His death. What exactly happens? It is God declaring you as righteous because of faith in the death of Christ. And now, how does this justification come to you? And I put it in this way, even to bring the reality of faith. How, how does this justification that is based on the death of Christ apply to you? And this is where faith comes in. How can you be declared righteous? This, this acquittal is received freely. It is not because of your achievement. It is not because you deserve it. It is not because, less of all, it's not because you paid any amount and so now you will get it. It is completely free because it is by faith. And so here we speak of faith. It is the instrumental cause. The death of Christ is the efficient cause. It's what starts it all. But you must believe And that's the instrumental cause. So think of it always with that example. Think of of a little boy that is in in a river that is very, very um, full of rapids. And there will be a waterfall up ahead. And that little boy can't swim too well. And it's it's sending them away. And then there's someone there with a rope. And that person throws that rope. That little boy holds on to that rope and is brought back into the shore. Would you say the rope saved him or would you say that man saved him? You see, in a way, both. But that man was the efficient cause. The rope was the instrument. It was the instrumental cause. And in the instrumental cause, even though there's a place for it, you, you can see where the glory cannot come to that instrument. Because where was the heart? Where was the strength? Where was the sweating? Where was the compassion? As that little boy went, it was on that man that threw the rope. And the, the rope was an instrument. See, that's how we should think of faith. And yet, faith, of course, is necessary. The rope is necessary. God could, of course, if, if it were God saving that little boy, he could have just made him come. But in that story, the man needed the rope. When we think of our salvation... God could have just said, I will save. But the problem would be with that is that there's still sin. And sin had to be dealt with. And he had to send his son. You see, when God saved us, he didn't just throw a rope. He gave his son. He sent his son to the cross. And there Jesus died. So here, the illustration of a rope doesn't help us anymore because it's it's not something we can go and grab. But it is a death that has power in it. And you must trust it. You must believe in it. And so when you trust in the Lord Jesus, you are, as it were, holding that rope that God gave 
And, and, and this holding of the rope is not something that you receive as a merit and that you receive praise because God's the one who gives you in your heart the understanding you should trust Him. He's the one who gives you a heart that is alive to trust Him. And this is why it's free. Matthew Henry says this. He says, The gospel excludes none that do not exclude themselves. The reason he says this is because the moment someone says, I will not believe, they are excluding themselves. There's never a single person who says, I will believe, and God says, no, there's no room for you. But then he continues, Matthew Henry, but the grace of God communicated to us comes freely. It is free grace, mere mercy, nothing in us deserve such favors. So those were the three questions. And just very briefly, the two observations. The first one is this. Have you stopped to notice how the world is very acquainted with justification? The, the world understands this, this reality, this phenomena. See, people choose a way of life. They, they have a practice. They have a behavior. God may call it sinful, but they seek to declare it innocent. If they practice, they, they want others to declare it in their behalf, and they do their part in declaring it too. Um, they, they write their laws. They write their books. They're, they're even doing their surgeries. They speak their science. And all in hopes of making something evil look good. They, they, they are justifying their actions. And even as they're doing this, who are they? They are evil themselves. They are against God and His Word. And, and notice how even the element of faith, it is believing in that justification that makes them think they are righteous. It is a form of justification by faith. But it is offered by people who are unrighteous. The whole system falls, of course, because no man is powerful to justify any other man, much less sinful man. But this is why I wanted to begin where we focus upon God. Who declares you as righteous if you believe in Him is a righteous God. He knows what righteousness is. And He has given His Son. And when you believe in that Son, He has decreed that by faith in the death of my Son, I will declare that you are righteous. And then comes another observation. Not only does man do their own earthly justification by faith to justify their own sins. Men look at this very thing I told you and they say, but then that's not just. How can a righteous God that you say He is, He's the very God who declares what is sinful and what isn't, and He's going to justify these people whom you have said are no good at all. Their throat is an open sepulcher. Their, their mouths are like full of poison. How can God justify that? And the answer is, He doesn't turn a blind eye to our sin. He puts them upon Jesus, His Son. And the two words, we won't go deep, of course, in these two words are redemption and propitiation. And notice that what's happening in the text, 
God is saying here through Paul that with Jesus being our Redeemer, whereby He paid and purchased us with His blood, and our propitiation, which means He took the wrath that we deserved. Look at verse 25. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. And then look at verse 26. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that He might be just. So the world might look at you and say, wait, you're you're telling me that God will accept you even though you've done all those things? Imagine if you're ministering to someone who's in jail and committed four, five, six murders. And then that murder goes around saying, "I'm, I'm being told that I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. And they say, what kind of cheap gospel is this? You go to heaven. Look at all that you have done. Isn't God just? But see, it's because Jesus suffered for those murders that that man is no longer in the eyes of God seen as a murderer, but righteous. And it's the righteous God who declares that. So no one can complain. The world still will. They, They call forgiveness cheap grace. We're never meaning this, beloved. If someone commits a crime, yes, they should go to jail. But then in jail... They are offered the gospel and we can minister and they can be a brother or sister in Christ, but they need to be in jail until they pay for that crime in this world. If it's life sentence, we will in heaven be together as a church. If he's delivered, he will be with us here as a church. But we forgive because God justifies. The world will still complain but we will rejoice. We have a God who is righteous and He declares those who believe to be righteous. If you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is where you must begin. Believe in Christ that He on the cross atoned for your sins, that He suffered there what you should Suffer. Confess that you deserve that suffering. Confess that you are that sinner. Confess that you believe He is righteous in giving you His Son. And then you can have the righteousness that Paul thought he had and then he realized he could only have in Jesus. And that's what makes the church united. We all need Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God, we are so thankful for the gospel. Lord, we're so thankful for those articles of faith that we've been studying through many Sundays now. And Lord, we pray that we would see these are articles we must believe. And by believing, we have righteousness. We are declared to be righteous in thy sight. And Lord, we pray that this very truth may be a great awakening. Either that those who have thus far not been saved, Lord, may have their eyes open to thy grace and thy great goodness and believe and be saved. 
And, Lord, those who are saved, that we, Lord, would be so full of joy and gratitude and and live this life of gratitude that we are called to live because of Thy grace. We thank Thee for the Lord Jesus. We thank Thee for Thy righteousness. We thank Thee, Lord, for declaring us righteousness, righteous for the sake of Christ who paid with His precious blood. We pray in His name. Amen.